Hey, how's it going everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 51 of The Essential X-Labs, and, uh, well, it's the final episode of The Essentials for the next little while. Uh, my DCBS shipment for October finally showed up, and, uh, well, it's the 11th of November, so uh, at least I got it in the first half of the month. Uh, can't always say that, so, uh, I guess we take any victory we can get, uh, tell you what, though, it's probably not a moment too soon to get back to the current year stuff, because, uh, in case it's not abundantly clear by my telling, um, uh, the, the uh, Silver Age silliness and Rascally Roy are kind of, I don't know, I'm kind of feeling a little fatigue <laughs> from uh, some of these odd throwaway stories that we're getting here uh, back in the late 60s. So I think it might be time to put them back on the shelf regardless. And then uh, in a couple weeks time, we'll pull it back down and hopefully be a little more receptive to the uh, silliness that we're going to be getting over the next uh, several issues of our Silver Age excursion here. But let's get into today's book, which, uh, well, <laughs> it's another one. Uh, it's, uh, we'll get to it. Uh, X-Men 41, February 1968 cover date. The story is called Now Strikes dot 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 The Subhuman. Written by Roy Thomas, pencils Don Heck, inks uh, George Tuska, letters Sam Rosen, colors by somebody, I'm sure. Uh, edit Stan Lee, cover price twelve cents. Now this is uh, this one. Before we get into it, has a fairly striking cover. It's almost completely red. It's uh, reminiscent of which one was it? Was it X Men 17 or 18? Whichever one had Magneto come back for that cup of coffee after the Stranger took him to. Wherever the hell he took him to, where he came back and he turned the mansion against the X Men, and a lot of uh, a lot of our letter hacks wrote in and said how striking that cover was. It was all red and just like it really stood out. So here we get another one, just like it. Only instead of Magneto, we have um, we have an awful, <laughs> awful looking character on it. So let's get on inside because uh, we open in the subway where we meet, as mentioned, one of the ugliest character designs yet, and I mean. This dude makes the porcupine look cool. Uh, almost. This guy's a mix of caveman, Hercules, and a yeti, I think. Uh, and, uh, well, he's ready to rampage right into the path of a moving train. Now, the conductor attempts to stop the train before running the jerk over, but he can't. Lucky for the jerk, he's strong enough to halt the train himself. Unlucky for him, there's a certain foursome riding this car, and, uh... Not exactly the one you're thinking about here. Uh, Stan and or Roy offer us a no prize if we can guess who they are, but, I mean, we're looking right at them at this point. Uh, so there's not much sport in this no prize hunt. Um, those four characters, by the way, are Hank, Bobby, Zelda, and Vera. So um, I suppose if... Check your scorecards. If that's who you guessed, uh, I guess you get yourself a no prize. Anyway, the power is cut to the train, so it's lights out. Under the cover of darkness, Bobby and Hank sneak away from their dates, and Bobby comments how lucky it was that Professor X taught them all how to sneak around in the dark. Probably to catch peeks at Jean while she slept? Yeah, I probably shouldn't have said that. Anyway, from here, it's fight time. And, uh, you know, it's a fight. Um, Beast does that thing where he, like, bounces off the bad guy while Iceman does some ice stuff. Uh, he actually does something new. He uh, tosses an ice boomerang. At this creature, which shatters on impact. And so he falls back to, you know, old reliable. He goes to Iceman Maneuver A, you know, encasing him in ice. And unfortunately, since this isn't Frankenstein's monster, it doesn't work. Beast refers to this ugly guy as being grotesque. And the monster likes the sound of it. And decides to name himself just that. Only phonetically. It's uh, the far more copyrightable G-R-O-T-E-S-K grotesque. 
And then, despite having the complete upper hand in the situation, the monster breaks away and flees through a tunnel, sealing it behind him. The beast tries to give chase, but this path is sealed tight. Next we know, the boy's date has resumed, but only long enough for them to walk their damsels home. Vera, who's looking particularly horrid this time out, kvetches the Hank about cutting their date short, while Zelda, who looks like she's trying to like cover a bald spot with a comb-over, uh, she accuses Bobby of two-timing her. And I gotta wonder if Zelda was surprised by the Bobby Bendis retcon. I don't know. Scene shift, back to the underground where we get a little bit of backstory on Grotesque, because we all wanted that, right? Now, he and his people lived in the underworld. They were probably neighbors of Tyrannus and the Mole Man. There, his people were ruled by King Chrono, who had a daughter named Princess Ingar, who was the love of Grotesque's life. Back then, he was known as Prince Gortak. So, hmm, okay, he was a prince, and his girlfriend was a princess. Is this like underworld incest? Incest on my show? Mm. Anyway, the underworld would be rocked when the upperworlders began engaging in nuclear testing. Now, this caused volcanic eruptions to just go nuts underground, sweeping through their civilization, which wiped everybody but grotesque out. So, you see, he's really just a victim here. Either way, though, he's vowed to destroy the outer world in revenge, so uh, I guess we've got that to worry about. We shoot over to the danger room where Professor X is riding his charges especially hard this evening. He lambasts Cyclops for his inability to control his beam. He calls out Angel for flying directly into a vacuum tube, which... I, I, I totally get that. I mean, Warren claims to have been surprised by this, but it's like a giant hole in the wall. So, I mean, nah, I don't know. Uh, he also tells Jean that she's not good enough when she takes too long to free Warren from that vacuum tube. Bobby and Hank arrive to uh, tell of their run-in with Grotesque, but... You see, they enter the danger room wearing their civvies, which is apparently the biggest of no-nos. Despite the fact that the professor himself isn't exactly wearing an ex-costume, but uh, I guess uh, the rules don't always apply to him. Anyway, this earns them both two demerits each. Two! Do you believe that? I thought this sort of thing needed to be run by Congress or something, but uh, yeah, two demerits, which means that they're both grounded from heading into the city for an entire month. Xavier then rolls on out, asking Jean to come with, as he has something to discuss with her in private. So we head over to Xavier's office, or his den, or wherever it is, where he apologizes for his harshness. Thing of it is, he just needs the X-Men to be perfect now. More than ever, they need to be absolutely on their game. Now, Jean pleads with him to tell the team what he'd recently told her, but he refuses, and uh, we will learn more about that next time. Now, however, it's time for them to do a bit of experimenting, and lucky for us, this is where we shift scenes. Over to Archer College in Manhattan, where some intellectuals are having a meeting about a device called a nuclear oscillatron, which can create earth tremors. Because that totally sounds like something that needs to exist, right? Uh, anyway, a Dr. Hunt is the one pushing for this thing, and he's being given the opportunity to put up or shut up. And so he does. Down below, Grotesque feels the tremor and figures, ah, the hell with it. It's time for him to exact his revenge against the Outer Worlders right the hell now. Back at Archer College, Hunt is happy that his device is a success. The rest of the stuffed shirts, though, well, they're not all that happy. Because, you know, all this asshole's done is figured out a way to cause earthquakes where there shouldn't be earthquakes, right? A Mr. Chalmers pipes in to suggest that this could lead to some sort of chain reaction of events which could threaten to rip the planet apart from its very core. 
So it begs the question, why'd they even give this Hunt idiot the opportunity to, to test this then? You know, should have just been like, no, we shouldn't cause earthquakes. Oh, well. Let's hop back to the school, where Xavier reads Bobby's mind without permission to get all the deets on Grotesque. He then dispatches the X-Men, sans Jean, to track down this monster. This causes Cyclops to wonder if Xavier might be in love with Jean. Boy, if you only knew, Slim. Uh, and considering that Chuck just read Bobby's mind without permission, I'm guessing he probably heard Cyclops' thoughts as well. Next we know, the X-Men are back at that blocked pathway in the subway. Beast and Cyclops then use their powers in tandem to break their way in. What they find behind the door is the ruins of Grotesque's old civilization. Beast uses his uh, keen sense of smell, which I didn't realize he had, in order to deduce that Grotesque was recently here. I don't know, maybe Grotesque just has a uh, especially pungent aroma? I don't know. Now, the fellows realize that they're unable to get a hold of the professor via telepathy and that their Dick Tracy watches are currently foobarred due to the excessive radioactivity in the air. And so Cyclops sends Angel and Iceman back to the mansion while he and the Beast will remain here. Meanwhile, Grotesque appears at Archer College and beats up a poor TA. Back at the mansion, Warren and Bobby meet up with Jean, who informs them that Xavier had just left. And so they explain the sitch to her and ask that she return with them to the tunnels to help out. But, alas, she mustn't. Warren calls her out for leaving the team in the lurch, and Jean says, no, 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 I want to help. It's just that I can't. From here, we head to the wrap-up, where Grotesque has brought that poor TA to his underworld base, and he threatens to crush him with his bare hands unless he spills the beans about where the tremor weapon is at. Just then, Beast and Cyclops pop in, and we're just about to fight. But that'll be next time. Next up, we continue our dive into the origins of the X-Men. I think this is this is part three or part four. <laughs> I can't remember. Anyway, this one is called The Living Diamond, written by Roy Thomas, pencils Werner Roth, inks John Verporten, letters Sam Rosen, colors by someone, and edits Stan Lee. Now we pick up right where we left off last time, uh, with Jack of Diamonds threatening to kill Professor X. Now he commands Scott to use his deadly cursed eyes on old Baldy, but our boy just can't go through with it. And so, Jack punches another beam, which causes the whole place to come tumbling down on itself. I gotta ask, isn't this like a nuclear power plant? That's like not a good idea, is it? It's pretty dangerous, right? Yeah, no matter. Anyway, uh, Scott and Jack are able to escape the wreckage, but yeah, it looks as though Xavier just bought the farm. Next, we follow Jack and Scott to another building on campus, and this is the one that Jack's been looking for. Now, you see, he's trying to find a way to turn the rest of his body into diamond, you know, just like his hands are. And the only way he can do that is by using the cyclotron device. As they approach the building, they run afoul of an armed guard. Now, Scott uses his optic blast to disintegrate the guard's pistol, and he only does so as he realized that Jack would have just killed the guy straight away. So he needed to kind of just remove this dude as a threat, I suppose. Now, Jack rushes into the building. He locates the cyclotron and... Hops on in, bathing himself with, uh, whatever the hell rays. Meanwhile, Xavier reveals that he used mental bolts to save himself from, the, from like, the falling wreckage. Mental bolts. Okay. Uh, he wheels himself outside, where a jeep full of guards are driving up to the Cyclotron building. From the bushes, Scott Optic blasts the buggy, but only does so because he knows that Jack would have killed them had they gotten close. Now, Xavier realizes that if any of these guards fire off any rounds, it would alert Jack, and he would, uh, you know, he would come down, and it would likely lead to a handful of deaths. And so he puts them all in suspended animation. 
He then telepathically contacts young Scott and tells him that it's not too late to undo all the harm that occurred this evening, and Scott's down to listen up. We wrap up back in the Cyclotron where Jacko Diamonds has successfully been transformed into the Living Diamond. But uh, that's where we leave it. And you know, um, I'm about to break a promise I made to myself here. Um, I promised myself during, during this early-ish run of Essentials that I wouldn't ever say, how much longer till we get the giant size? But uh, here I am. Now, how, how much longer till we get the giant size? Because, yeah, these are not great stories, are they? Like, these aren't even fun to poke fun at. These are just dull and plodding and... Uh, and perhaps worst of all, uh, just feel utterly irrelevant, right? I mean, when are we going to see Grotesque again after the story's over? When are we going to see the Frankenstein android again? It's like we are dredging from like the bottom of the Marvel Reservoir here to see what floats up to the surface. And uh, what we get is Grotesque, both literally and, and figuratively, I suppose. And I tell you what, I almost feel like I'm letting people down because the analysis portion, if we can call it analysis... Uh, you know, the part of the show where I say, you know, what I liked about a, a book or didn't like about a book. I feel like it's been kind of lacking over the past several episodes because, well, these stories really don't inspire all that much in the way of an analysis or they don't really provoke much thought. It's uh, runs of issues like this that we just covered that uh, really illustrate to me why so many folks have such a hard time doing you know, full-blown X-Men read-throughs. You know, I've heard from a lot of folks who have tried multiple times in earnest to read through from Uncanny 1 all the way to current day, and I feel like 90% of the time, you know, they get to a certain point in the in the original 66, and they just say, screw it, and they hop to giant size, and I can totally see why, right? I mean, these are not the most fun stories they don't really inform a lot of what the X-Men will go on to become. It's just filler. You know, these feel like filler stories, monster of the month type stories, which, I mean, if that's what you're in the mood for, I suppose you could do worse. But uh, I tell you what, uh, I'm in the mood for that sometimes. But I feel like uh, for the past like 10 to 15 issues now, actually since Roy Thomas came on 20 issues ago, that's what we've been getting more often than not. And, uh, yeah, fatigue is setting in. Uh, thankfully, uh, Roy is going to take a little bit of a break pretty soon, and we'll get uh, a few issues by Gary Friedrich. We'll hop into Arnold Drake, and then uh, Rascally Roy will come back to, uh, to take us home and to wrap up the original 66 before we hop into, boy, um, just a mess of Marvel appearances throughout the early to mid-'70s. It's, it's going to be... It's going to be interesting. I think that's going to be very, very fun. I'm looking forward to that. I'm, I'm certainly looking more forward to that than I am, you know, the next couple of issues. But we are completionists here. Not fake-ass completionists. We are whole-ass completionists. So we're not going to be skipping around. We're not going to jump straight to giant size, no matter how much more fun that would be. <laughs> we are going to get all the way through the original 66 and uh, cover all the pertinent stories we got to before we enter the, uh, you know, the Claremont era. So in the words of Stan the Man, how about uh, we just, uh, we enough said this. Enough said on, on X-Men number 41. And let's hop into the mutant mailbox here. Our first letter comes from Frank Hembeck. I wonder if he's related to that other Hembeck. Uh, he's in New York, and he loved X-Men number 37. He says that Factor 3 was worth the wait. 
Eh, okay. Uh, 37 was okay. Uh, he wants to know how sometimes Cyclops is able to keep his beams in when he closes his eyes, and sometimes, well, he can't. Now, Stan says the times that Scott could stop the beams, it was because he was covering his eyes with his hands or his arm, and that his body, sans his eyelids, are actually immune to his deadly, cursed optic blasts. So the more we know. Rick in Maryland. He points out the artistic inconsistency in X-Men of late, compares it to the merry-go-round of artists on the Hulk strip, and he wants an explanation, damn it. Like, he is not messing around. He wants to know what's going on. He also for some reason, wants to know how the Inhumans made it over into the Thor book. Okay, um, and he's confused about the upcoming origins of the X-Men featurette, and he asks if this is the same thing that was just reprinted in Marvel Tales number 2. Now, Stan says that uh, X-Men number 1 was reprinted in Marvel Tales number 2, which was their first appearance, but not their origin, if you, if you dig. And uh, that's something that uh, is kind of near and dear to me, because, uh, you know, despite being... The intellectual giant now speaking into your ear. Um, when I was a youngster, I also mixed up Origin and First Appearance. So, like, I remember, you know, seeing Origin of Professor X in, what was it, X-Men number 8. And I remember looking like, Wizard Magazine and seeing that, like, oh, Professor X. And I always confused that with, like, the first appearance of Professor X. So I wondered why Professor X came so much later than the original X-Men. And... I was very, very confused, so uh, I think a uh, much more intelligent friend of mine explained the difference to me uh, and got me, you know, set on the right path here. Back to the letter, uh, Stan says uh, about the artistic inconsistency that, uh, well, this issue is far too complex for Rick's feeble mind to grasp, so he won't even bother trying to explain it. Okay. And also, he has no friggin' idea why the Inhumans are in Thor. So that makes two of us, or three of us, I don't know. Bobby on Tennessee is a... He took a break from being dropped on his head to write in the following. What does the TM on the covers of comics mean? And he's got some ideas, and he wants to know if there any of them are right. He's got Tameless Marvel, Timeless Marvel, Thoughtful Marvel, Titanic Marvel, Timid Marvel, or Tireless Marvel. And it's trademark, you hammerhead, and Stan says as much. Uh, next up, Saul in Los Angeles says, The X-Men have sucked since issue 31. But, at least Marvel tries to make good comics, unlike Brand Ugh. He says he wants the Banshee and Mimic to join the X-Men, to which Stan says it would be far too confusing to add them to the roster since all the X-Men have their individualized costumes now. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> Next up, we got our fourth letter from Guy H. Lillian III in California. Four letters, how about that? Now, he comments on Chapter 1 of the Origins of the X-Men featurette and says it's pretty well done. He says he wants to see the origin of Magneto, and he thinks Cyclops is the best Marvel superhero ever, even better than Spider-Man. To which Stan invites Guy to start sending some letters over to Spidey's mailbag. There you go. We got Lauren in Seattle, who's got a question about the Super Adaptoid. Now, if trying to absorb the Mimic's artificial powers caused him to short-circuit, or whatever the hell happened in that issue, how in the world can he now be sporting Iron Man's equally artificial powers? Gotta say, that's a pretty good question. To which, Stan shrugs and sends out a no prize. Uh, we got Douglas Dams. I like that name. Douglas Dams in Wisconsin. Now, he nearly dropped the X-Men after number 36's run-in with Meccano, Meccano, but 37's Factor 3 story won him back. He also really dug part one of the Origins featurette. And he points out that Stan erred when he pointed folks to Marvel Super Heroes number one for the reprint of X-Men number one when it was actually in Marvel Tales number two. 
to which stand mea culpas and sends out a no prize. From here, let's bulletin. It's the bullpen bulletins, also known as more baddie bulletins to bewilder, bewitch, and bedazzle thee. Item. Now we open the hot with the next in our MMMS rankings. And by hot, I mean sort of kind of bored of the concept and <laughs> kind of over it. Um, okay, let's recap. First, there was the RFO, the real frantic one. This is a buyer of three or more Marvel mags a month. Then there was the Q&S, the Quite Enough Saya, and uh, those are, you know, those who've had at least one letter published. Then we've got the TTB, the Titanic True Believer, and they are the recipients of a no prize. Now we're adding the KOF, Keepers of the Faith, and this refers to anyone who's brought a new reader into the Marvel fold. Stan warns that next month we'll learn about the highest ranking of them all, the PMM. And boy, that's almost enough to make me want to push back Original Recipe X-Lapsed Return. No, not really. Item, did you know Marvel mags are being printed worldwide in eight different languages? Well, you do now. And that's nine languages if we're counting Cree, which we're not, so it's eight. Item, remember how a few issues ago we mentioned that England's Autumn's Press would be printing Marvels for the UK? Well, yeah, they are. That's about it. Item. Now, Stan shares a letter from Bill Reed in Scarborough, Ontario, regarding Operation Mail Call Vietnam. And this is about how to write to a serviceman. And Stan thinks this is a great idea, but make sure to point out that this is not an endorsement of the war itself. He says opinions are divergent among Marvel readers as well as members of the bullpen. He believes in making the boys who were sent over there realize they haven't been forgotten about and says that this is a cause that transcends politics. And he's right. We wrap up with Stan's soapbox, and he addresses the change in masthead for some of the titles, including Tales to Astonish, Tales of Suspense, and Strange Tales. And uh, they've been changed to more prominently feature the name of the characters being covered in the shared books here. So the name of the character overcomes the name of the actual book here. And this, he says, is all leading to the second Marvel Age of Comics which he'll be spilling some beans about pretty soon. And I think many of us uh, fake-ass comics historians know where that's headed, but uh, we'll we'll get there when we get there. Let's hop into the mighty Marvel checklist. We got Not Brand Ugh, number six, and it's the same one as last month. So I'm guessing Not Brand Ugh is officially bi-monthly? I don't know. Fantastic Four number 72, Would You Believe, Silver Surfer and the Watcher? Uh, yeah, it's an issue of Fantastic Four. I would totally believe that. Okay, Spider-Man 58. J. Jonah Jameson makes his move in to kill a Spider-Man. Avengers number 49 has Magneto Madness at the UN and Wanda and Pietro back to their evil ways. And we'll be covering this one pretty soon. Daredevil number 37 has Daredevil vs. Doctor Doom. Marvel Superheroes number 13 features Captain Marvel's first challenge because for at long last, the Sentry lives again. And probably not that Sentry. Uh, Thor 149 has Thor vs. The Wrecker. Suspense 99 has Iron Man vs. Whiplash. Even still, Cap and Black Panther face Baron Zemo. Astonish 101 features Hulk and Asgard, and Submariner vs. a terrifying new villain. Strange Tales 166 has Nick Fury vs. You guessed it, Yellowclaw. And Doc Strange vs. Yandroth. Sergeant Fury 51 has Howlers behind enemy lines. Captain Savage number one has the same pulse-pounding debut as it did last month. And we have reprints in Collector's Item Classics and Marvel Tales number 13. Finally, we have the MMMS box, where we have 26 new members, but no VIPs so far as I can tell. 
Alrighty, well that is our issue. Let's hop into the shout-out department where I thank folks who uh, thought enough to hit that little uh, heart or thumbs up or whatever uh, whatever the little icon is on the social media thing for the uh, for the show, helping to spread the word and raise the uh, profile of this little program. Over on Twitter, I want to thank Walt Neal and Jeremiah, Joe Crawford, Dave Schultz, Ed Moore, Billy D, Chris at BTO and Bat Books, Wayne Burroughs, and Artificial Twins. Over on Facebook, I want to thank Jesse Young, Chris Bailey, Andrew Franklin, Pat Sampson, Jeremiah, Walt Neeland, and Billy D. I want to thank the patrons at patreon.com slash xlapsed, Andrew Franklin, Ed Moore, Walt Neeland, Jeremiah, Jason Colby, The Scary Stuff Podcast, Jesse Young, Damian, Peter McPherson, Mark Jagger, Herman, and Andrew in Belfast. I've recently added a new Sales of X uh, article over there going through the first month of the post Hoxpox. uh, I guess relaunch or uh, just era, new era, we'll say, uh, with uh, Hox and Pox number one, going through all the variant covers, going through all the various printings, and uh, I tell you, it's some pretty interesting stuff when you uh, take the time to dig deep on these nebulous numbers that the industry gives us. Also, uh, there will be a new episode of One pretty soon. I spent... Uh, about an hour and a half writing a script on my phone for it uh, while I was in a waiting room the other day. And I've never done that before. It was interesting to uh, type out these notes on my phone <laughs> in a uh, Google Doc. Very bizarre sensation there, but uh, I'm glad I did it. It was a nice use of my time, and uh, it will get that ninth episode of Point One out all that much quicker. So uh, if you're part of the crew, look forward to those. But uh That'll do it for today. Um, I think for the past few episodes, I forgot to give the contact information. Not that it really matters, but uh, in the interest of, uh, I don't know, in the interest of occupying another 45 seconds of your day, I don't know. Anyway, for any reason you want to get a hold of me, you could find me several different ways. On Twitter, I'm at Ace Comics. You can send an email to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com, or you can call into the X-Lapsed voicemail hotline at 623-396-JERK. For blog posts and show notes, Chris is on InfiniteEarths.com. For uh, the Facebook group, 90s X-Men. Uh, what is, what's next there? Uh, the archives, the audio archives, ChrisAndReggie.Podbean.com, available on all your favorite and least favorite audio applications. And, of course, the aforementioned Patreon at Patreon.com slash Xlapsed. I think that'll do it for today, and that will do it for the essential Xlapsed for uh, this little uh, run. I, I guess we'll be back with these books in about... About two weeks' time, I think. So if you're an Essentials listener, I'll talk to you then. If uh, you listen to regular X-Laps as well, I will talk to you very, very soon. But uh, in any event, I would like to thank you all so much for sharing some of your day with me today. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya. <laughs>